ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, I'm Jen Leake. This is Rear Vision. It's hard to keep track of the different legal cases against Donald Trump, but earlier this month, a New York judge found the former president and the Trump organisation liable for business fraud. My message is simple. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how much money you think you may have, no one is above the law. This is really at the heart of what Donald Trump likes to brand himself as this billionaire, expert businessman. But the accusation from the prosecutor in the state of New York, his home state, is that Donald Trump artificially inflated the value of his assets in order to receive a financial advantage. This is a pure witch hunt for purposes of interfering with the elections of the United States of America. It's totally illegal. This judge should be disbarred. He shouldn't be allowed to be a judge. Trump could face a $250 million fine and be banned from doing business in New York, which is kind of a big deal because the Trump family has been developing and selling real estate in New York since the 1920s. So how did Donald Trump make his fortune? And how valuable is his brand today? My father was great. Good salesman, good builder. He loved to build houses. He was a good builder. I learned so much from him. And he was a great guy, a lovely guy. I loved my father. Fred Trump made millions building low-income housing in Brooklyn and Queens. Donald started working for his father straight out of college in his early 20s. But unlike his dad, Trump wanted to expand the business to Manhattan. You know, Trump was an outer borough kid. He was what in the parlance of the time by snobby Manhattanites would be referred to as part of the bridge and tunnel crowd. His father had been a developer in Queens and Brooklyn and had never really ventured into Manhattan. But New York in the 1970s was chaos. The city was facing economic ruin, not a place many people were willing to invest in. Jonathan Sofa lived through it and is a professor of history at NYU's Tandon School of Engineering. New York had been shut out of borrowing any money. And what that meant was that nothing was getting fixed. And in addition, there was a great deal of disorder. I mean, one day I hailed a taxi cab to go to the airport, and I had a heavy suitcase. And the cab driver got out of the cab uh, to try and help me get the suitcase in the trunk, and somebody tried to steal the cab. This is how bad conditions were in the 70s. Nobody was building anything new or glitzy. The city was struggling to attract business, and that helped Donald Trump secure an incredible tax break on his first big project in Manhattan. He partnered with Hyatt Hotels to buy the rundown Commodore Hotel with a 40-year freeze on property tax. Gwenda Blair is the author of The Trumps, Three Generations That Built an Empire. At this time, in the mid-70s, New York City was on the ropes. It was almost bankrupt. And Donald saw that and saw that it was a good opportunity to get an amazing deal with tax abatements, write-offs, 
he was very, very shrewd about timing and about the idea of doing something unexpected. And in that case, what was unexpected would be to do new construction in the middle of a city where nobody was doing new construction. Who's he negotiating with to, to get that incredible tax break? A really good question. When he started negotiating that, the mayor was Abe Beam. Who was Abe Beam? He was a guy from Brooklyn, from the outer boroughs, who was part of the Brooklyn Democratic Party apparatus. And Fred Trump had spent his entire career buttering up that particular group of politicians. And the governor was from Brooklyn. The mayor was from Brooklyn. It was a perfect moment for Donald Trump to enter into Manhattan. This first building was a partnership, and the renovated hotel was renamed the Grand Hyatt. But Trump did still manage to fit in some of the personal branding that would come to dominate his career. He couldn't do it with the Grand Hyatt because he was partnering with Hyatt, and that was sort of the senior partner, although the restaurant was named Trumpet's. What he did was to make it seem brand new. So he actually put a glass covering, coating around an old building. So it kind of popped out and looked brand new amidst all the old, dowdy East Side New York buildings. But he did deliver something that was very exciting. And New York had not had a new, exciting, new looking building for some time. He made it seem like something was happening uh, in a place where nothing had been happening. Fred Trump gave his son access to capital and the important political connections he'd built up over decades as a successful developer. But Donald brought something extra to the game. Fred was not unaware of the value of public relations, but it was, relatively speaking, on a fairly modest scale. The difference for Donald was that he caught on to the idea that if you're big enough, And if you're famous enough, you can do anything. And he took that forward. So his dad was very good at finding the shrewd way of operating the pennies to shave off of a deal, taking advantage all over the place. But his dad wasn't trying to to put into that equation famous, celebrity, huge, worldwide fame. Branding is really what this was all heading toward. And it's not that branding had never been heard of before, but it hadn't really been applied to real estate yet. One of his most iconic buildings is, of course, Trump Tower, his second big project in the city. He managed to secure a prime site, which at the time was occupied by a posh department store called Bonwit Tellers. As part of the deal, he'd promised to preserve two valuable sculptures before the building was demolished. One morning, people looked up to discover that they had been hacked away and that these sculptures hadn't been preserved and given to the Metropolitan Museum of Art at all. Why did he do that? He was impatient. He said at the time, they're junk, who cares? He was only looking forward. The idea that you would preserve something from the past, why? Why would you do that? And he had the crew to do it, who were um, undocumented Polish workers. 
there was a lot of outrage when it was discovered these sculptures had been destroyed. Trump was getting a hammering by the press. So he asked one of his employees, a man called John Barron, to call up reporters and radio stations to defend and explain what had happened. But John Barron was actually Donald Trump. And if you listen to audio of talkback calls, it's clearly him. He made no effort to disguise his voice. He did that a number of times. John Barron was the name he usually used and would, would introduce himself as a, an agent, a press agent, some kind of somebody connected to the office of Donald Trump. He used that stratagem a number of times after Trump Tower was finished. He used that to suggest that various famous people, celebrities, were just about to uh, buy condos there. For example, Prince Charles. He would call up and uh, leak fake information like that to reporters. His father did that. His father called up in the press occasionally. He, he was Mr. Green. That was the name he used to represent himself when he was leaking favorable information about the developer, Fred Trump. In business, Donald Trump was brilliant at spinning the narrative and making it look like he was doing something no one else could do. And that's exactly what he did when he took over the construction of an ice rink in Central Park, which had been suffering major delays and cost blowouts. He swooped in with his own crew. He didn't have to submit anything to competitive bidding. He had he could spend whatever he wanted he could do it his way. He could, in, instead of having to go through city processes, and the ice rink had been designed to be a ice rink in the winter and in the summer, a pond where people would sail boats and stuff. He tossed out that part, the summer part. So it's sort of like made half as hard to manage all the plumbing that was involved with having to freeze stuff in the winter and in the summer have it be liquid. He completely changed the job descriptions, or as we would say, moved the goalposts. So he ended up with an ice rink that worked. And everybody forgot about the other part. He completely outmaneuvered everybody up to including the mayor who made who said he'll never be able to do it. And then he did it. Such a vivid image of Donald Trump out on the ice rink. He skated, I think, once for the photo. It was a very indelible image of how he just outmaneuvered everybody. What's happened is phenomenal. I've never seen anything to the extent that I have in New York. It now, from a real estate standpoint, has probably become the hottest city in the world. People are flocking here by droves. Mostly, I feel, it was the psychology of making New York a winner as opposed to a loser. I sort of love and hate him at the same time. I mean, I think he has, you know, a monumental ego. He comes off as being very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Arrogant? Yeah, he's, an, he's, he's arrogant. <laughs> I like him. The man's got a maid, got everything. The 80s was a decade of excess for Donald Trump, expanding into casinos in Atlantic City, including the Taj Mahal, which at the time was billed as the most expensive casino ever built. And to do this, Trump had to borrow an enormous amount of money. Lasers, fireworks and miles of neon lights provided the colour as Trump opened the Taj Mahal Casino Hotel in Atlantic City. 
But Trump's spending spree went well beyond casinos. Dan Alexander is a senior editor with Forbes magazine and author of White House Inc., How Trump Turned the Presidency into a Business. He buys uh, the Plaza Hotel in New York and admits at the time that he buys it that the price that he pays makes zero financial sense. He buys a professional football team, American football team, that is not in the NFL, but he thinks is going to compete with the NFL and ultimately fails. He buys all this stupid stuff uh, that's all basically vanity purchases. Now, the problem with borrowing a bunch of money from other people is that eventually they expect you to pay it back. And your, your businesses that you bought in the meantime better be making a lot of money. And Trump's weren't. And the flamboyant New York businessman Donald Trump is besieged by bankers and bad news. The Trump profile came from his flair for self-publicity and the way he stamped his name on assets. There are Trump hotels, Trump office blocks, a Trump airline and Trump casinos. Now Trump has been trumped. Martin DeBell in New York. For the last few days there's been serious speculation about the solvency of Donald Trump's empire. The suggestion is that Trump is technically bankrupt. What happened is in Atlantic City, he declared multiple bankruptcies with the casinos. He then basically kicked the can down the road on his debts with those casinos. And he was also trying to manage some of the other problems that he was having. So the Plaza Hotel in New York, that one that he said made no sense from the start. Well, it really didn't make any sense. And it ultimately declared bankruptcy also. Okay, so he's dealing with all of these bankruptcies at once. And what he's able to do is he basically takes this collection of assets in Atlantic City and he piles them into one publicly traded company. And he goes public on the New York Stock Exchange with a ticker symbol of DJT and Trump Hotels and Casino Resorts lights up Wall Street. And everybody's super excited about it. And they think that Donald Trump is a star and he's walking around. New York Stock Exchange with Marla Maples, his new wife, on his arm. And he's this young, brash guy who talks a big game. And everybody's really excited about it, including a lot of investors. So now he has this publicly traded company. But the beauty, from his perspective, is that now he can take the debt problems that he had personally had and force them upon the public shareholders. By taking his company's public, Donald Trump was able to file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Well, it's part of what some people consider the genius of American-style capitalism, that you always can start over. You can mess it up, and then you can walk away from it. And if it's a publicly held, as the casinos were, you leave it to other people to pick up the mess. That publicly traded company then declares another two bankruptcies, and Donald Trump basically walks away and leaves the shareholders stuck with all the problems. So, and in the meantime, his other assets in New York, so for instance, 40 Wall Street or Trump Tower, some of these sort of older assets, all of those things are increasing in value as he's fighting with his lenders in Atlantic City. And he foists all those problems upon the public shareholders, screws the lenders, walks away, and then fights in courts with about, you know, many of the shady maneuvers that he pulled to to make that happen. But while he's stretching this stuff out in litigation through the mid-90s, the value of these other assets is increasing by more than it costs him to fund that litigation. This is Rear Vision. I'm Jen Lake. 
Trump started his career building and developing, but by the late 80s and into the 90s, it was all about the brand. David Graham is a staff writer for The Atlantic. There were Trump steaks, uh, there was Trump shuttle. Um, I had a bottle of Trump water uh, <laughs> that I used to keep on my desk, which is just like, you know, ordinary water, but branded with Trump's name and a big picture of him doing a thumbs up on it. Ties, mattresses, other clothing. And at the very start of my career, I covered real estate for a while. And um, this was right after the 2008 recession. And I covered a bunch of lawsuits involving Trump. And there were all these cases where he had taken some fee to put his name on a project. And then the developer would sell it as, you know, this is Trump Fort Lauderdale or, you know, you name the place. And so then people sued after the projects went up and they sued Trump. And Trump said, you know, look at the contracts. I wasn't involved with this. I just sold my name to it. I had nothing to do with it and I can't be held accountable for it. Um, so he, you know, kept all these things at arm's length, but he understood that some people would pay a premium just for having his name on the thing. And the other funny thing I think about this is he has sort of tried to keep these brands alive. So Trump stakes came and went. And then when he was running for president, there was a campaign event where they had supposed Trump stakes on display for a company that had disappeared years ago. And some reporter looked and there were labels for another company. And they just slapped the Trump stakes logo right over the top of them and hoped no one would notice. What he did was mush together this identity as a high-end luxury brand, which he did starting with that Grand Hyatt Hotel and then Trump Tower, and this notion of super luxury, the best of the best, and to uh, monetize that, that somehow, if you were holding that ballpoint pen or drinking Trump water or drinking Trump wine or eating a Trump steak, some of that fairy dust would somehow come off and you would be able to share in that you know, business titan aura if only very briefly. He wasn't building new buildings. He was ever enhancing the brand. Along the way, Trump started acquiring and constructing golf courses, both in the US and overseas. You can find his courses in Scotland, Oman and Indonesia. And they're still a really important part of his business today. But in 2004, something came along that supercharged his brand, The Apprentice. The real... Life Raft comes in 2004 with The Apprentice. He is cast as this, you know, world titan in real estate. And each season, 10 contestants are vying for a job with the Trump organization. And in every show, he gets to be Mr. Success and Mr. In Charge to show off big office, to show off his uh, apartment to show off his building. It's basically an advertisement for himself in the way he likes to imagine himself. So it was enormously helpful. So that got him from New York real estate into like every American home. And that pretty much takes us to 2015 when he announces his bid for the White House. And we know what happened there. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. All right, let's get to this civil fraud case in New York, which has been led by the state's Attorney General, Letitia James, since 2019. She began investigating the Trump organisation in part because of damning testimony from Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, just before he went to jail for tax evasion. Let's say it said he was worth $6 billion. 
Well, he wanted to be higher on the Forbes list. He then said, I'm actually not worth six billion. I'm worth seven. In fact, I think it's actually now worth eight with everything that's going on. Alan and I were tasked with taking the assets, increasing each of those asset classes in order to accommodate that $8 billion number. It's funny because it feels like it was for a long time an open secret. And Trump says, you know, these prosecutions are political. Letitia James ran for office saying she was going to get Trump, and here she is going after Trump. Um, Why are they doing this now? And to a certain extent, he has a point. This has been going on for decades, and it's really only since he became a political figure that suddenly people are going after him. And I think until then, there was a lot of sort of rolling of eyes, and but also a sense, oh, well, this is how business works, and there's a certain amount of fudging numbers built into the system, and is anybody really being harmed by it? And so I think he got away with it for a long time. And some of his reaction now is shock that anyone would possibly hold him accountable now after he and probably other people he knows operated this way for so long. What did Letitia James, the attorney general, what did she find out and uh, accuse Trump of? She filed an indictment last fall, and it's really an incredibly detailed and and um, damning document. And a lot of the documents that she's basing this on were forms submitted to banks, um, applications for loans, his accountant statements, um, which she subpoenaed. And so basically, Trump treated the values of his properties as something that was totally subjective and changed from moment to moment. So when he wanted his tax bill to be lower, he would say that a property was worth less. And if, for example, he wanted to get a loan on favorable terms, he would claim it was worth more and then be able to sort of claim more collateral. And the overall effect of this, she said, was, you know, year over year, he would claim a higher and higher personal net worth. And that in turn allowed him to get loans at a better rate because he could personally guarantee them against his assets. And those assets were valued based on bogus claims. So it all self-perpetuated. Like everything he was doing um, allowed him in one way or another to inflate his personal net worth um, year over year. In the stuff that he's been found guilty of, what if it is is particularly bad and what if it is just kind of a lot of stuff rich, dodgy developers do generally? I think one of the big misconceptions of this case is that Donald Trump has just been a little aggressive with his numbers. It's not that he's just been aggressive with his numbers, although he has been. So for instance, if you're valuing something on a price per square foot basis, yeah, he puts his price per square foot at the highest end of what might be possible and then maybe a little further. But that you could defend. What you can't defend is saying that there are square feet in the asset that don't exist. So saying that your penthouse is 30,000 square feet when it's actually 11,000 square feet. So it's not just that it's aggressive, it's that some of the numbers are fundamentally and provably wrong. And the problem that he faces, his organization kept detailed notes of the math of how they got to their numbers on every single asset. And that's where you can see fraud, because you can see the instances where they're being aggressive, using an aggressive price per square foot number. But more troublingly, you can see the instances where they're just lying or valuing a club, for example, on the number of memberships that it can sell and saying that the memberships sell for $200,000 a piece when in fact they sell for only $50,000 a piece. It's those discrepancies that are provably wrong. And that's why 
this case, although it might seem like it's sort of malleable and difficult to get your hands around, when you really get into the details of the math, is actually pretty clear. You work for Forbes magazine and Donald Trump seems to have an interesting relationship with wanting to get a certain amount of status from Forbes. So Donald Trump's history with Forbes goes back over 40 years. Uh, the first time that Forbes put together the Forbes 400, which is the first rich list that we did of the richest 400 people in the United States, Donald Trump was on the list. He appeared with his father with a combined fortune of $200 million, $100 million apiece. Donald Trump shouldn't have been on the list. He had lied to get there. He didn't actually have uh, a big part of his dad's fortune at that point. And uh, he fooled us into thinking that he did. And so we attributed a higher percentage of it than we should have to him. But as soon as he's on the list, he becomes fixated on it. Uh, He obsesses over it. He meets with reporters year after year. He comes up with all sorts of lies uh, to try to promote himself to get higher on the list. And he sees it as sort of a, uh, you know, a validation. Um, but also, as he said to us, he finds it helpful in financing. You know, we've had our back and forth with him every single year. No matter what we say he's worth, he always says he's worth more. And when we see Trump sort of bragging about his value on the Forbes list, it can seem a little bit cartoonish. But it's also in service of a larger goal, which is to claim that his brand is worth some sort of amount of money. So when he says he's a billionaire, most of that wealth is not based on actual property. It's based on what he claims you know, the, the Trump name is worth. And all of these things feed together. So if he says the brand is, if he's high on the Forbes list, then he can say the brand is worth more. If the brand is worth more, then he can submit valuations to banks and you know, insurance companies claiming that higher valuation. That in turn allows him to get better terms. Uh, those better terms allow him to inflate the net worth. So all of this really feeds together, whether it's the sort of vain superficial stuff or the like very specific applications for loans. Does this really do him any damage politically? Like if you're sort of someone who's thinking, am I going to give Trump another go if he runs for 24? The one thing that I think is interesting about the New York case from this perspective is him being labeled a fraud by a court. And that's a really blunt thing. We've had people allege that he's a fraud or you know, call him a fraud in a uh, colloquial sense. But here we have a court actually saying that he committed fraud. And I'm interested to see how his opponents will try to work with that. Gwenda Blair has been covering Trump for decades and remembers a particular exchange during a press event in New York in the late 1980s. He came in at a certain point and he saw me and he said, wow, you look great. You must have been working out. For like, you know, five seconds, I went like, oh. And I just like went, oh, that's how he does it. That's how he does it. And then I saw him do the same thing with other people there. There was one woman who was a very harsh critic and he said, hey, I just read your article. Some really good points there. And you could see her going like, Oh, people that work for him told me like he would walk in the room and he'd turn it on and they would just they would say, oh, yeah, where do I sign? Because he seemed new and exciting when New York was on its back. He was doing he was doing big things. They could be in on it. It was like an infinitely expanding fame machine. 
people make fun of him for not being as good of a businessman as he says he is, or not being as good a developer as he says he is, or you know whatever it is. And sometimes that's true. You know, you can look at the four bankruptcies, and there are four bankruptcies. But he has just a great sense of you know where a market is and where there are consumers to tap into, and I think that is his kind of business genius. Thanks to all of the guests in today's program. Gwenda Blair is the author of The Trumps, Three Generations That Built an Empire. David Graham, staff writer with The Atlantic. Dan Alexander is a senior editor with Forbes magazine and author of White House Inc., How Donald Trump Turned the Presidency into a Business. And Jonathan Sofer is professor of history at NYU's Tandon School of Engineering. This revision was produced by me, Jen Leake, and sound engineer Isabella Tropiano for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.